You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 347 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we've spent the last several episodes looking at things mainly from the federal point of view, there on the southern end of the battlefield, with regard to Dan Sickles' decision to move the Third Corps forward without orders to take up an entirely new line along the Emmitsburg Road at the Peach Orchard and down in front of Little Round Top. But with this show, we'll turn our attention to what was going on over on the Confederate side. Right. And what you guys certainly realize by now is that the second day's fight, like the first, developed in a way that wasn't quite what either of the commanding generals had intended. For George Meade, that was because of Sickles' unauthorized and reckless move forward. While for Robert E. Lee, it was because when Longstreet's Confederates finally reached the jumping-off point for their attack, a little less than a mile west of the Round Tops, they found the situation in front of them much different than they had expected. Remember, they were supposed to be on the flank of the Union Army, All they should have needed to do, according to Lee's plan, was deploy in line of battle straddling the Emmitsburg Road and facing northeast, then march right up the road, rolling up the enemy line. Instead, they found the Federal defenders, the men of Sickles' Third Corps, almost as far south as Little Round Top and several hundred yards west of it occupying a sprawling line that rambled over hill and dale, but was definitely in front of them and more or less facing toward them. Upon discovering this entirely unexpected situation, the commander of Longstreet's lead division, Lafayette McClaws, later admitted, quote, The view astonished me, as the enemy was massed in my front and extended to my right and left as far as I could see. End quote. It's no exaggeration to say that McClaws was at a loss. He was not on the Union left, as he had been told and as he'd expected. He was instead directly opposite a strong line of federal troops positioned where they weren't supposed to be, just 600 yards to his front, in and around the Peach Orchard, with their lines running both north along the Emmitsburg Road and southeasterly, it appeared, 
all the way toward Little Round Top. The enemy was not holding the position Lee had envisioned, and it was now apparent to McClaws that Lee's plan of attack on the Union left had been based entirely on a false understanding of the strength and location of the Federal position. Worse, as soon as they came within view of the enemy, McClaw's men drew fire from the Union artillery posted to their front. That meant that despite McClaw's and Longstreet's best efforts to avoid detection, despite that lengthy and time-consuming march and countermarch to get into position, there would be no surprise attack that day after all. Lafayette McClaws realized that since he was not on the Union left, as he had been told and as he'd expected, but was instead directly opposite a strong line of federal troops positioned where they weren't supposed to be, that unexpected development meant what followed would necessarily have to be a straight-on frontal assault rather than the flank attack that Robert E. Lee had envisioned. After sending Longstreet word of the situation, McClaws got to work. The incoming artillery fire forced him to deploy his brigades into lines of battle on Seminary Ridge, ironically, in much the same position Longstreet had earlier traced on the map before being countermanded by Lee. At any rate, McClaws now deployed his four brigades with two up front and two back, Joseph Kershaw's brigade filed to the right, taking cover behind a low stone wall that ran along the crest of the ridge. About 150 yards behind Kershaw's South Carolinians went the Georgia regiments led by Paul Sims. Turning our attention up front again, William Barksdale's Mississippians formed to the left of Kershaw, with their line extending northward, toward the right flank of Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's Corps. Then McClaw's final brigade, another all-Georgia outfit commanded by William Walford, took up position to the rear of Barksdale. So, up front, that's Kershaw and Barksdale, with Semmes and Walford behind. At the same time the rebel infantry was deploying, E.P. Alexander's artillery battalion unlimbered to the front of McClaw's men, and its guns were soon trading shots with the Yankee cannon posted in and around the peach orchard. Longstreet hadn't believed McClaw's report of the discovery of a strong enemy force unexpectedly positioned to his front, so old Pete sent word that, quote, he was satisfied there was a small force of the enemy in front, end quote, and that McClaw's must, quote, proceed at once to the assault. A short while later, when he didn't hear any of the familiar sounds of battle that would accompany a Confederate assault, Longstreet sent one of his staff officers, Major Osman Latrobe, to see what was the matter. McClaws responded by saying that he would advance as soon as his division was fully deployed, but he wanted Longstreet to know that he was not on the Union flank, and therefore he had to make careful preparations for a frontal attack against a strong enemy force that was posted there in an unexpected position. Latrobe took this information back to Longstreet, 
but it wasn't long before he again came galloping back with orders to attack. McClaws said that he would attack, but was hoping to delay his advance until the Confederate artillery could further soften up the Union lines. He also told Latrobe that he wished Longstreet would ride forward and see the situation for himself. Latrobe rode back to Longstreet, but soon returned a third time, making it clear that the orders to attack were to be carried out immediately and were not open to debate. Frustrated by Longstreet's obstinacy, but resigned to obey the orders he'd received, McClaws said he would launch his attack in five minutes. However, even before those five minutes had passed, a new order had arrived from Old Pete, saying that McClaws was now to hold off and wait for the men of Hood's division to settle into position, not immediately in support of McClaws, per the original plan, but now on McClaws' right instead. Once Hood's division was deployed, it would be Sam Hood who would now kick off the Confederate assault, with McClaw's troops stepping off only after Hood's men, to their right, had engaged the enemy. This literally last-minute change in plans upset McClaw's, especially after Longstreet's earlier stubborn insistence that McClaw's attack before he was ready to do so. Afterward, Lafayette McClaws aired his grievances in a letter to his wife, writing, quote, General Longstreet is to blame for not reconnoitering the ground and for persisting in ordering the assault when his errors were discovered. During the engagement, he was very excited, giving contrary orders to everyone and was exceedingly overbearing. I consider him a humbug, a man of very small capacity, very obstinate, not at all chivalrous, exceedingly conceited, and totally selfish. If I can, it is my intention to get away from his command. End quote. Well, so there you go. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. 
Join me on a journey, not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Meanwhile, John B. Hood would also be slow to attack, although his delay resulted from his efforts to change his orders, not from a request for more time to get into position. Hood's line, in the end, was essentially an extension of McClaw's on Warfield Ridge, which itself was the southeastern extension of Seminary Ridge. Hood's battle lines extended Longstreet's right flank, crossing the Emmitsburg Road at an acute angle. Hood later recalled his instructions as simply to move south past McClaw's position and, quote, "...place my division across the Emmitsburg Road, form line of battle," and attack." Hood realized, however, that the Federals to his front, holding a line from the Peach Orchard down to the front of Little Round Top, effectively nixed any idea of attacking up the Emmitsburg Road as ordered. In fact, the more he studied the situation, the less Hood liked what he saw. In reality, with the Yankees positioned as they were, Hood's division, like McClaw's, would have little choice but to abandon any idea of advancing up the Emmitsburg Road, and instead would have to drive more or less straight east, making a frontal attack against the enemy over yonder. Sam Hood was a fearless and sometimes reckless fighter, but the prospect of advancing into the broken terrain over there, a half to three-quarters of a mile away, made even him most unhappy. Hood realized the ground to his front presented serious problems to an attacking force. Command and control would be an issue since the uneven ground would be difficult to cross in organized line of battle, even if the advance was uncontested, and that would not happen, of course, since there were obviously thousands of Yankee troops over across the way. Hood was especially wary of the rugged, broken terrain at Devil's Den, quote, with immense boulders of stone, so massed together as to form narrow openings, which would break our ranks and cause men to scatter. End quote. Hood understood an assault through there might only be done quote, at a most fearful sacrifice of as brave and gallant soldiers as ever engaged in battle. However, Hood thought there was a way of avoiding these difficulties altogether, and he strongly urged it. You see, his Texas scouts had reported that the Federal line ended in front of Little Round Top, while the summit of Big Round Top and the area south of its base was clear of enemy troops. Hood said the scouts told him that, quote, The country was open, and that I could march through an open woodland pasture around Round Top and assault the enemy in flank and rear, that their wagon trains were parked in rear of their line along the Tawny Town Road, and were badly exposed to our attack in that direction. 
Hood sent off an aide to report his opinion to Longstreet that the best course of action for his division would be to march his men to the south and east, around Big Round Top, and attack the enemy in flank and rear. But Longstreet flatly rejected Hood's suggestion, replying only that, quote, General Lee's orders are to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. Well, an attack up the Emmitsburg Road wasn't going to happen anyway, not with the Federals positioned as they were. So Hood repeated his request and received the same reply. Firmly convinced of the correctness of his suggestion, Hood then made a third appeal through an especially trusted staff officer, Colonel Harry Sellers, recommending that Longstreet ought to come and view the situation for himself. However, Sellers also returned bearing the same curt response from Longstreet. At almost the same time, Major John Fairfax of Longstreet's own staff rode up to Hood and repeated the orders to, quote-unquote, attack up the Emmitsburg Road. Hood later recalled that he formally protested the orders, but, quote, After this urgent protest against entering the battle at Gettysburg, according to instructions, which protest is the first and only one I ever made during my entire military career, I ordered my line to advance and make the assault. If the situation with McClaws and Hood shows anything, it clearly shows that there was a breakdown in Confederate preparations and communications, worsened by unexpected tactical developments that were the result of insufficient field intelligence. In other words, when the Federals were found to be positioned in force where they weren't supposed to be, the Confederates were unable to adapt the situation incapable of improvising a revised plan to deal with the situation, and ultimately would prove unable to overcome the difficulties that confronted them. Hood was upset at not being allowed to sweep around Big Round Top and gain access to the Union Army's left rear and supply trains. McClaws was clearly bothered by what he perceived as botched orders, and the presence of a Union Corps that wasn't supposed to be there, only 600 yards opposite his position. And looming over all of this is James Longstreet and his mindset that day, which seems to be clearly linked to his unhappiness over Lee's refusal to consider his, that is Longstreet's, proposal to sidestep a battle at Gettysburg altogether. Several sources state that Longstreet was in consultation with Lee when both McClaws and Hood requested changes to the original plan of attack up the Emmitsburg Road. However, it's unclear to us whether this was actually the case. In fact, we couldn't find any firm evidence as to when Lee learned that the situation on the Union left wasn't at all what he had thought it to be. At any rate, Longstreet's refusal of Hood's request to make a flanking movement around Big Round Top actually makes sense, since by that time, the afternoon was already far gone, and it would most likely have used up most of the remaining daylight to complete such a maneuver. 
That decision, though, is about all Longstreet did that afternoon that makes sense. I mean, Longstreet's refusal to join McClaw's and view for himself the situation to McClaw's front seemingly defies all logic. When McClaw's reported that a strong enemy force was unexpectedly there to his front, with the implication that therefore the original Confederate attack plan needed modification, Longstreet's stubborn inflexibility makes little sense. To McClaw's, Longstreet simply continued to urge him to attack immediately, and to Hood, once he instructed him to get into position on McClaw's right, Old Pete did nothing except doggedly repeat that it was Lee's orders to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. And so in the end, as far as we can tell, both McClaws and Hood were left to their own devices, essentially modifying Lee's original attack orders on their own to suit the situation as they actually found it, which meant driving due east against the Federals across the way and abandoning any thought of following the original directive to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. Forming his division to the right of McClaws, Hood, like McClaws, had stacked his division with two brigades in front and two in support. Evander Law's exhausted and thoroughly parched Alabamans formed the right of his front line. Also up front, Jerome Robertson's brigade of Texas and Arkansas regiments formed to the left of Law, their line stretching northerly toward McClaw's right flank. Henry Rock Benning lined up his brigade of Georgians roughly 200 yards behind Law, while another all-Georgia brigade, commanded by George Tige Anderson, went into position to the left of Benning, behind Robertson. It was already well after 4 o'clock that afternoon, with the sun already halfway down the western sky, when John B. Hood, having just formally protested the orders to make this attack, reined up in front of his old Texas brigade, pointed toward Little Round Top, and yelled out, Forward, my brave Texans, forward, and take those heights! Forward! 